Good morning again. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 5, 1 through 11. Please read with me the verses in bold. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Oftentimes we hear the word church and immediately uh, jump to an image of a building. But you and I both know that the church is more than just a physical structure that stands on the corner of, of these streets or that city or that town. We know that it's more, much more than stained glass windows or pipe organs or pews or a crucifix that constitute a church. Sometimes we might hear the word church and think about the leadership structure or the governing body within that church. I have heard some say, I disagree with the church, or I agree, or I stand on the same side as the church when it comes to, uh, you fill in the blank. But what are we talking about, or who are we talking about well, but, but when, we when we mention the word church, if not the board or the council that lead us, but you and I both know that elders or deacons or executive committees or bylaws or even pastors are a poor constitution of a church. Imagine if there were only pastors. You might hear the word church and be led to consider what happens within its walls like a service or programs or studies or meetings that take place there. It's strange to think about how we managed to do church when we were shuttered during the early part of the pandemic. But you and I both know that a church is more than singing or teaching or hearing from a preacher. And by the way, Grace Sacramento, uh, at Grace Sacramento, Brad and I, we have 
said that you're one week away from hearing a good sermon. Um, one of the jokes that we say. But if you're here uh, for the first time, uh, or if you're here for the second week, I would say, uh, you are out of luck. You have to wait another week. Yes, the church is all these things, but it's so much more. There's something vital missing when we attempt to define church as any or all of those things I've mentioned. It's people. What constitutes a church is you and me. The church is the body of Christ, the gathered people of God. As a brief aside, Grace Sacramento, you may or may not know, is the result of uh, two churches that merged a little more than five years ago. City of Grace and Living Grace. How ironic that we shared similar names. I had the privilege of uh, planting one with a few good friends. Uh, Living Grace, the church we had the joy of planting in a living room. With one guitar and stand, lyrics on a piece of paper, rented chairs each week in the living room of one of our homes, ten families. You know, when we define church, I mean, there were no stained glass windows or a crucifix, or maybe there was. Uh, Mark, I think there was a small one in the living room there. But how do we define church? The root meaning of church, uh, the word ekklesia in the Greek is the called out ones. According to the New Testament, it's not that of a building, but of people. The word we commonly use to refer to a holy place or a temple may be more accurately translated assembly or a gathering. If you're just joining us, we are in a long sermon series we're calling That You May Know as we go through the Gospel of Luke together. And look at the life and ministry of Jesus. I've been hanging on to what Pastor Brad preached two weeks ago about Jesus going to church. Remember that? The top ten list. Jesus going to church. And one of the themes early in the book of Luke is that Jesus regularly uh, finds himself in the synagogue. A word that also means to come together. Assembly, a, a gathering, a coming together of the people of God. I mean, when you read through the book of Luke, the early parts at least, you look at Luke chapter 2, and it says they found him in the temple. Again, we're looking at Jesus' early life, him as a, probably as a teen. He's there in the temple among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And in verse 47 of chapter 2, it says, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Luke chapter 4, verse 15, he taught in their synagogues. In Luke 4, 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. In Luke 4, 31, it says he went out to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had, been, who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out in a loud voice. Or Luke 4, 44, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. 
Yes, he taught in the synagogues, which we read about in Luke, but the note of interest as we continue in the book of Luke is that he did more than just teach in the synagogues. Again, when we think about a synagogue or a temple or a gathering, that's what it was, the people gathering to hear what Jesus had to say. You and I both know he taught on the mountainside. You may have read through Matthew chapter 5 through 7 where it tells us that he taught, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus taught those who wanted to listen. And in our story this morning, he's teaching on the seashore. Luke gives us the context for this. In verses 1 through 3, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. By this point, Jesus is becoming very popular. The crowds are astonished at his teaching. Uh, he is driving out demons. He is healing the sick. And the text tells us they are pressing in to hear him. He is standing by the Sea of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. That may be more familiar to you. Those in Capernaum called it the Lake of Gennesaret. Uh, it was eight miles by 14 miles big. That seems like much bigger than a lake. And it's funny because Luke is the only one who calls it a lake. I and mean, everyone calls it uh, the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And Luke here calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. And Jesus here teaching on the shores and this large multitude that has been following him has come to hear his teaching and are pressing in on him because they cannot hear what he's saying. And so Jesus in verse 2 says he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Jesus asked Peter, a fisherman, who had been out on the water all night and now washing his nets away from his vessel. And so Jesus asked that he would use this vessel, one of his fishing boats as a natural podium, a floating pulpit in an amphitheater to address the crowds on the seashore. Now, I've just given you some context. But the majority of our time this morning, I want to spend on these verses, starting in verse 4. That when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, a conversation taking place between him and Simon Peter. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. And Peter responds, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Jesus might have been a bit presumptuous to say to a commercial fisherman, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. What does a carpenter know about catching fish? I can almost imagine Peter saying in his head, Jesus, stay in your lane, brother. <laughs> I'll do my thing. You do your thing. Leave the fishing thing to us. No one likes to get on-the-job advice from someone in a different line of work. And by the way, never tell me, don't never tell me like how I should be preaching. 
That's okay, you can. Peter was the professional, not Jesus. You can always imagine Peter. Jesus, just stick to your day job. Be a carpenter. Be a preacher. But what Jesus does is he calls for overtime work without overtime pay. For the fishermen during the least productive time of the day, again, Peter had just confessed, Lord, we have been toiling all nights. We had already completed the full night shift without showing anything for our efforts. But out of respect for Jesus, Peter responds, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing. But he says, but at your word, at your word, I will let down the nets. Almost sarcastically, Jesus, if you say so. The King James Version says, nevertheless, at thy word. Because you say so. While verses 1 through 3 seem to give us the summary of the context of what is about to happen, Jesus had just finishing, finished uh, preaching to the crowds, and yet what's interesting by the time we get to verse 4 is that Peter had not been affected by the preaching. Peter had not been moved or touched by the hearing of God's word. But despite his professional opinion of the situation, Peter gives command to his companions to cast the nets to see what they might find. And then in verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so they began to sink. There's shock, there's awe, as they find immediate success. This is what fishermen, fishermen dream of, I would think. They spent a lifetime in hopes that maybe someday something like this will happen to them. What a sight. So much so that they're having trouble on the water. There's tension in the waves. When the fishermen drag their nets, they come up with a ton of fish. I mean, literally, ton of fish. The nets found the fish, but they were so full they were breaking. So they signaled to their partners on the, in the other boat to come and help them. And, then, and the text tells us they, they filled both boats full of fish. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. One of, uh, there's a show on TV that we have, uh, as a family, have loved to watch. It's, uh, I'm not sure if I am admitting to you my, my habits here, but too late. <laughs> but an ep episodes of uh, Undercover Boss. It's not a, not a new show, it's an old show. But if you're, not, if you're not familiar with the show, it's about high-level executives who slip anonymously. They, uh, they disguise themselves as entry-level employees. They change their appearance. They assume an alias and a fictional backstory. I love it. They go to this organization 
Uh, they go through this organization as, as low-level employees or entry-level employees to discover the faults of their own organization or company. And at the end of the work week, the undercover boss returns to his or her true identity and calls in selected employees to corporate headquarters, and oftentimes the boss rewards them with a, a new car, sometimes there's cash, there's a promotion, and you know, I mean, if you've seen it, it's, it's pretty amazing. And it's not little, it's a lots and lots of, of money or expensive things that are given to these employees. And my favorite part of the show is the reaction of the recipients. There's excitement. There's joy and, and excitement uh, over this landfall that they had not expected. And there's so much joy that there's crying. Ever wonder about that, why people cry when they're happy? Now, I'm not trying to stereotype, but you know who you are. Those are tears of happiness, tears of joy, tears of relief. You know, you never expect tears at the end of a show like that, right? I mean, you don't expect tears. You expect other things. And so, but in shows like this, you see these tears of joy, these tears of relief, and it's, it's strange. And the strangeness of this story is the reaction, the response to this miraculous catch of that day. Simon Peter saw it. He falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, leave me. Get away. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. I mean, you don't expect that. These are fishermen who had toiled all night. They had caught nothing. And Jesus tells them to cast their nets into the deep. And they haul in so much fish that the fish that they had never seen, again, that this, this low that they had never seen before. And you would think there's elaborate, you know, uh, exuberation, right? I mean, am I saying that word? Elubri ex <laughs> exhilaration. I'm trying, I think I'm mixing up two words. It's a new word. Exubilation. I mean, I don't, there's excitement there. They're so happy. I mean, you would think that there's this gladness that they had caught so much fish. I mean, it's a, it's a profit. It's more than they had bargained for. And yet Peter says these interesting words, which again, are so profound, I think, which is really the point of this whole story. Leave me, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. His reaction to the catch is immediate. Why would Peter beg Jesus to leave? What was Peter repenting of? What did Peter need to confess? You know, we confess when we have to, I think, sometimes. We confess when we have been caught. We confess when we have committed a sin and that weighs heavy on our conscience. What sin had Peter committed? What had he done wrong that, needed to get, that he needed to get this off of his chest? It's a strange reaction to a full catch. It's not the kind of reaction you expect. You might imagine exuberance, high spirits, elation, maybe even tears of happiness. 
but not here and not now. Peter falls to his knees and he calls, and who he calls and who he had just called master just a few seconds ago. He says, Lord. It's hard to tell what Peter is confessing, whether it was his lack of faith, perhaps. Maybe it was his sarcasm. Or maybe uh, it was what he said, Lord, if you say so. Or perhaps it's pride. I think perhaps Jesus, uh, you know, again, Peter thinking, Jesus, you think you know better, but I know better than you. Hard to say. It's hard to say without fully going inside the heart of Peter. But my guess is Peter is not confessing a specific sin. It is not confession of a single sin that he has committed, but a recognition of who he is. A recognition of his character before the divine. He calls himself a sinful man. Peter's reaction is a confession of unworthiness. Now, I'm not equating myself to Jesus, but sometimes I'll go to the market. Uh, I rarely do. My wife does most of that. So I'll go to the market sometimes, and I'll see someone I hadn't seen at church in a while. One of the first things they do, and again, this is not a, a knock on people who see me in the marketplace and, uh, or, or somewhere out and about, and uh, you, you don't need to confess where you've been and why you haven't been coming to church. <laughs> But I get that sense sometimes. You know, people see me like, oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor. I know I would have I been there last week, but I, I wasn't. And, you know, there's something about, again, what's happening here that's, that's very similar. They, again, Peter realizes something. He sees something about Jesus that he confesses his own unworthiness. It's a realization of this vast difference between Jesus and himself. What is his sin that he declares? Just like Job's confession in Job 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And at the very end of that section in verse 6, it says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or Isaiah chapter 6 you may be more familiar with. In the year King Uzziah died, again, Isaiah, he looks at the throne of, of God, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, again, these angels, each had six wings. And again, these angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations shake, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, upon looking at the holiness of God above, says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I get the sense that something similar is happening to Peter here. He's looking at the holiness of Jesus. He sees the divine in front of him. He has seen God face to face and realizes something about the holiness of Jesus, the, the greatness of Jesus, the splendor of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus, and realizes his own unworthiness. He realizes his sinfulness. Peter realizes who Jesus is, the true Son of God from heaven. 
You see, because to see God is to see ourselves as we really are. And sometimes the vision is too much for us to handle. Peter could not stand the contrast between the purity and the power of Christ and his own sinfulness. Something Peter realizes at that very moment is that Jesus knows his vocation better than he does. Jesus knows their needs better than they do. It's the size of the catch that amazes the disciples. Here is a carpenter teacher delivering the goods as a professional fisherman. They know something is going on. God's goodness, again, brings an awareness of who they are. Here is a man who had been, who had been deeply changed on the inside. His pride had been burned away by the transforming vision of what Christ does at the lake of Gennesaret that day. What does he realize? He realizes that this is divine power. This is who he claimed to be. This is who he said he was. You see, because only God can produce such amazing results. This meant that Peter was standing there face to face with God. He was facing God himself. Immediately in the wake of this miracle, Peter is overwhelmed with two things, the greatness of Jesus and the greatness of his own sin. In the Bible, when people have a real encounter with the living God, they always come away with a sense of the greatness of, the God, a greatness of God and the smallness of themselves. That's why I think John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. Surely he knew better than the fishermen. Jesus knew better. He had authority over everything, over evil, over Satan, over every disease, just like we saw in the last chapter and here over nature. And I will tell you this morning, my friends, this is not a strange reaction. This is normal reaction to revelation. Confession of sin. Peter knew that the unholy cannot stand in the presence of the holy. It all starts with, and we're talking about discipleship. Again, this whole section, this, this section in chapter 5 is about the Jesus calling Peter to be his disciple, to follow after him. But it cannot start without first a confession. It all starts with confession. Seeing God for who He is, the nature of who He is, and then seeing ourselves for who we are. In Psalm 51, David prays this prayer. Psalm 51 is this prayer of confession. And David appeals to the nature of God as the ground for his forgiveness. Lord, because you are full of compassion, Lord, because you are slow to anger. Lord, because you are gracious and merciful. 
Lord, because you are the covenant God who keeps his promises. Lord, as much as you are just, Lord, also show your favor upon us. And this is the sinner's plea. There are no excuses. All the, all the evidence convicts us. And yet David says, there's an argument I can make before God. I, can, I can't argue from the fact of my own case. The facts, the evidence condemns me. But I can argue from the character of God. I can argue from the character of God. I can ask God on the basis of his great mercy. My friends, I have looked upon my own heart, and to be honest, I have found nothing good in me, nothing to mitigate my sins before God, and so I come not by my works but, and not by my obedience, not even by my observation of the law, but simply by the character and the grace of God. For you see, what brings us and gives us acceptance before God is confession. Such confession is the means by acceptance, uh, to acceptance by God. For John the Apostle says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, on the other side of confession, God isn't there to just rub our faces in our sinfulness, but to meet us with the promise of renewal, that by His Spirit, He will recreate us from the, from the inside. You see, for confession leads to renewal, and confession, as we see here, is a beautiful grace. And he saw Peter. Peter falling at the knees of Jesus. Peter saying to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus saying to Simon, do not be afraid. Brian Chappell, one author, a pastor, he says, repentance is not about earning grace, but entering it. It's not about quenching his wrath but quieting the accusation of our heart. It's not about unlocking his mercy, but releasing our sin-sick sorrow to the Savior who already rejoices to receive it. And that's why I think Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, and I think those are the key words of this whole section. From now on, from this point forward, everything changes. There's a new beginning. Your life has been transformed. There's a new calling. No need to be afraid, Peter. From now on, you'll be catching men. And what Peter says is, uh, what Jesus says to Peter is that your sins will not disqualify you. What you have done has not disqualified you from, from following this. Jesus never turns his back on the sinner, but includes the sinner in his task. And what a reversal, what a token of the grace of God. That despite what we have done or where we have been, that by our confession, which is a gift, 
He calls us to a new call. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. What God does with our witness is his business, but our business is to fish for men. There's a, a world watching, and the church is a, a witness to the mercy and the grace of God. It means inviting friends. It means praying for people in need. It means having a, a gospel ready to preach or to share when that time is given. It means praying for family members. It means all sorts of things. It means that we show a gentle and humble posture when it comes to our interactions with our neighbors. It means all sorts of things, but we put ourselves in positions so that people might see Christ in us and through us. The focus of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus knows our human condition, and yet, despite all these things, he gives us opportunity to share in the mission the greater task, and he transforms sinners into servants. My friends, this is the good news. This is the good news. Someone like Peter, who had no business being in the vocation he was in, and yet Jesus calls him to partner with him and, and calls him to be on mission together as a witness to a watching world. We follow Jesus. And we follow Jesus because of what Christ has done for us.